I have attained the fourth jhana in several meditation sessions, but have not experienced unbounded consciousness yet. Lee Brasington said that he imagined himself getting bigger and bigger. Uh, I'm not qualified to answer this question, so I'm not going to be able to give you anything. That's probably a better question to ask Bhanteji. You talked today about the four foundations of mindfulness. I don't understand the second one, sensations. Actually, somebody else brought that up as, as a translation that some people are using um, instead of feeling. It's not a bad way of putting it, sensation. Um, are these internal emotions like joy, sorrow? They're not emotions. In terms of the four, in terms of the four foundations of mindfulness, what you think of as emotion is going to be found under mind, not under feeling. Like I mentioned, feeling doesn't mean I feel sad. I feel happy. Um, so when you know that those kind of uh, things, like emotions, which are complicated, there's you know emotions have both a physical and a mental element too sometimes. Um, but those are going to be more like to fit under the um, the mind part of the Satipatthana. <laughs> are they physical ones like pain, tickling? I like tickling. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, there you go. Pain. We consider it normally to be an unpleasant feeling, although some people like pain. Um, and tickling we normally consider to be somewhat of a pleasant feeling. Although there is a uh, there is a rule that monks can't tickle each other because essentially what happened was they tickled the monk to death. <laughs> That's the story. So monks uh, monks aren't tickling each other, but lay people can tickle. That's fine. The four foundations of mindfulness lead to the realization of no self. After possessing this knowledge, one still has to apply it directly and knowingly to the five hindrances to realize wholes, I guess that's wholesomeness, um, right? Through virtue and other wholesomeness, the hindrances are suppressed in the mundane something and eradicated in the super mundane jhanas. Well, all of the jhanas are considered super mundane. That's a, that quote that I gave you in the beginning, the super mundane states. Um, so those are every jhana. I, I assume this person's talking about maybe what's usually called the arupa attainments, um, which is like the formless attainments. Sometimes people call them jhanas. Um, but they're not the the eradication of the hindrances doesn't have anything to do with jhanas themselves. The eradication of the hindrances has to do with the insight developed and developing yourself to the point where you have attained non-returner. And then those, those uh, hindrances, the first five um, of the defilements, 
are eradicated by the time you're a non-returner. Are the jhanas something that one should seek out or just experience as a byproduct of meditation via virtue, concentration, and wisdom? Um, I think it's perfectly fine to seek out the jhanas. It's perfectly fine to have an aspiration that you want to attain jhanas. Jhanas are, you know, jhanas are a, a wonderful vehicle for insight, right? So the the problem, the, the the thing that you want to make sure is that, you know, you make an aspiration. I want to attain jhanas. Why? That's the important part of the aspiration. I want to attain jhanas so that I can develop the insight, you know, to eradicate the defilements, to become awakened, etc. Because in Buddhism, the jhanas are, you know, the, the in the early Buddhist text, the Buddha uses the jhanas for that purpose, not just not for anything else other than um, for the using it to develop insight. Of course, once you become awakened, it, uh, the jhanas are um, <clears throat> one of the ways that the jhanas are looked at as a pleasant abode. So for the awakened beings, they can go, they go into jhanas, just kind of like when they're not doing anything, you know, when they're not teaching or whatever, they just go into jhanas. So it's also something that uh, in the Sela Sutta, this is the Sutta of the arrow. This is the famous Sutta uh, where the Buddha talks about the two types of suffering. This is a, uh, it goes at an un, an un, uh, a mundane person, somebody who is not trained um, in the Dhamma. When they're hit with the arrow of physical suffering, they get hit with the second arrow of mental suffering, lamenting, um, crying, etc. But an awakened being, or even actually people uh, on any of the levels of awakening, they're hit with that first arrow but they're not hit with the second arrow. They Even the Buddha ex- experienced, because he had a body, he experienced physical pain once he was awakened. But it didn't affect him mentally. So that's, um, and in that sutta, the Buddha explains why we do what we do in terms of when we are hit with a physical something physically unpleasant, an unpleasant experience. We don't, the Buddha says, we don't know any other escape than sensual pleasures. And that's because we, that's all we know. Well, the escape from that he's talking about, that somebody who is a trainee, a seika, somebody who has, uh, has reached like the, at least the first level of awakening, sotipana, that is, that, Escape is jhanas. That's that pleasant abiding. Um, instead of, you know, oh, I have, you know, I have this unpleasant feeling. Now I'm going to go drink or do drugs or eat a lot of food or play a lot of video games or whatever. Right? That's our mo. We have this unpleasant experience, and we want to um, drown it or forget about it with some kind of a pleasant experience. Because that's all we know, because we don't know, we don't have the insight to understand deeper, and we don't have the development of jhana to use as a pleasant abiding. 
What is the difference between hindrance, defilement, and nirvana? Okay, so the defilements are the ten defilements are what hold us to this samsara. They hold us to this world. And as we become the levels of awakening, we actually let go of these defilements. So the first level of awakening is sotapanna, stream enter. And somebody who has become a stream enter has abandoned the first three defilements. The, it is the, um, the defilement of the doubt. So they have no further doubt as to this is the correct path and this is the way to awakening. Because when a stream enter actually uh, has a glimpse of Nibbana or Nirvana when they become a stream enter. So they've seen it very quickly for themselves and then all doubt has vanished. The other is that, um, the other is that uh, they don't believe in rules and rituals that in and of themselves will become awakened from that. So at the time of the Buddha, there's the, you know, the belief that all I have to do is do this ritual or do this sacrifice or whatever it was, and then that I could become awakened from that. And the Buddha says, no, that's not the case. It's your action and, you know, your, your karma. That's how, you know, you become awakened. So you have no doubts that, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't do rites and rituals. Because rites and rituals can have a good purpose on the practice. It just means that you don't believe that those rites and rituals in and of themselves will be conducive to becoming awakened. And the third one is the identity view. Sakayaditi. So that's the, uh, once you have become a stream enter, those three are gone. The, once you become a, um, the next level, which is a once returner, this person has, um, has weakened the next two, which is the first two of the, um, the first two hindrances, sensual desire and ill will. A non-returner has eradicated sensual desire and ill will. So up to being a non-returner, you've eradicated five. These are called the lower fetters, the lower defilements. And then um, the awakened being eradicates the last couple, the last five, which is the desire for form, a, a, you know, a form existence, a desire for a formless existence, um, the uh, ignorance, then uh, restlessness and conceit. So those are the last five. And once you've eradicated those last five, you're done. Your job is done. So that that's the so as you could so there are some hindrances that are also defilements. That's why when we practice John when we practice subduing the hindrances, we're not eradicating them yet. We're just subduing them. And uh, so Nibbana or Nirvana is the ending of all acquisitions. It is, there's a lot of things that the Buddha calls Nirvana, Nibbana or Nirvana. Um, it's the deathless, meaning that you are no longer born, so you no longer die. 
Um, the, 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 de- the easiest definition for Nibbana, the one that the Buddha uses the most is, when you have let go of your greed, hatred, and delusion, you're awakened. So greed, hatred, and delusion is the definition the Buddha uses for becoming an awakened being. How does one let go of craving if simply knowing it doesn't help? That's the tough part, right? <laughs> that's the that's the hard part, because you can you you get into these the um, you get into these parts where you start to see that what you're doing is is harming you or or others, but you can't stop doing it just yet. You're kind of in this middle ground, and so. You know, to, to let go of the craving, the, the way you really let go of craving is you naturally let go of it when you have insight. Otherwise, you, you can't force yourself to let go of, an, of a craving. You might be able to do that in a temporary sense. Like, I'm going to, I have this craving for ice cream, but I'm going to force myself to stop that craving for ice cream or something to that effect. But you can't, you can't, you know, your will, that's you're using your will to do that. And your will is very limited. So you can't just, you know, do that and uh, forever. So the craving is let go from insight. Craving is let go by understanding the gratification, the danger, and the escape. And now if you're craving something, you can you can think about it. Okay, I understand why this is why I want to do this. Remind yourself of the dangers of it. If I do this, what will happen? You know, how will it be unskillful? How will it harm myself and others? So you can use these techniques, even if you have to just as a kind of reminding yourself, bringing these, these questions up instead of, you know, if you have the mindfulness to be able to do that. Sometimes you're just so wrapped up in the craving that your mindfulness is totally gone. Um, so trying to bring in some some kind of investigation of the craving, if that's possible. If you have the ability to have that mindfulness and investigate it and you know, um, remind yourself of the drawbacks so that you can at least at that point in that one particular... Um, experience possibly stop it but otherwise you really only let go um, through insight there's a a wonderful sutta the buddha talks about there's uh two words first one is nibbida the second one is viraga nibbida is usually translated as revulsion Um, it's really in my opinion the best way to translate it is disenchantment because it's not really a revulsion, per se. Nibbida is uh, best used by a, a simile. The Buddha uses a simile of children making a sandcastle. And he says that while the children are enthralled with the sandcastle and building it, they love it and they take care of it, and it is so dear to them. <clears throat> and then once they're done with it, and it is not dear to them any longer, they crush it and they destroy it. <laughs> So, this is the, um, and uh, Tanisara Bhikkhu kind of takes that and, and uses uh, another simile that I like. 
<clears throat> he says, uh, and this is, if you've been around children a lot or if you have your own children, you've seen this. <clears throat> right? When, when a child has a new toy, it's the best thing ever. They love it. They're dragging it everywhere. If you put them in the car and they don't have the toy they want to I want, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna yell the whole way to the store if I don't have this toy with me. Like these kind of things. They want it so much. Right? <clears throat> and then over time, or a week later when they get a new toy, that toy is thrown into the corner somewhere and they like the new toy. Right? So, uh, Nibida is like, when you are a child and you've outgrown your toys and your toys just are there, there's no, you don't hate the toys, but you don't have the desire for them anymore. That's Nibida. That's this kind of, when you develop insight into how things are, when you start to see how the world is, you don't start, to, it's not like, oh God, the world sucks. I hate people. I want to go and become a monk. That, <laughs> that's not how it is. Although some people, that is kind of how they feel, but they, they, that doesn't help them once they become a monk, believe me. Um, but it's just, you understand, okay, well, this is the way the world is. Why am I fighting the world? Why am I causing myself so much suffering? Right? And so you just start to naturally just let go. You know? and, and so that's when you develop that nibida. And so that's where, and, and once that nibida arises... That's where the craving starts to lessen because you, and you don't need to. It's like a child, it's like a child that touches their, their hand on a, a stove, right? The first time they don't know, they, ow, it hurts. From then on, they're not going to be like, oh, let me see if uh, I do that again. No, they know. They don't, I'm not going to cause myself suffering. I'm not going to put my hand on the stove. I'll just let it go. So that's really, that's how you let go of craving in the long term in the short term you try to develop techniques that uh, allow you to subdue it or act more skillfully in the short term I tell you what you guys asked some really good complicated questions you're really making me think today it's good <clears throat> I need to get tested. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. What is the difference between concentration and mindfulness? They both require you to sit, close your eyes, and meditate. Quote, unquote. No. <laughs> well, concentration, in many ways, yes. Although you can also practice concentration while you're walking meditation, too. It's just a different kind. Um, I think I know meditation or breathing what meditation, what is meditation on sensations all over the body? What? No. What? Mm. Okay. So, this is not an easy question, and it's answered many different ways by many different teachers. So, <clears throat> when you, um, I'll just go back to what I was saying in terms of the Noble Eightfold Path, right? Right Samadhi, right concentration is jhana. Right mindfulness is Satipatthana. And you can think of them as two separate types. And you, like, you can see it today. Like there's, like there's Vipassana centers. There's not like jhana centers, but you know, like this is, we do only Vipassana here, right? 
Um, but if you look in, if you look in the suttas, if you read the suttas, there's no, this is Vipassana or this is, you know, this is one thing and this is the other thing. They actually are one thing. They're practiced together. As Montesila likes to say, in tandem. They're practiced in tandem together. And so when you are practicing your mindfulness, when you're practicing uh, Satipatthana, there is a concentration involved in that. It's not a very, it's not a, a very deep concentration, like a jhanic level concentration, because you need to be more aware of a lot more things going on around you. Like those, of you, you can know the difference um, in terms of when you sit and you close your eyes, right? Compared to when you go outside and you do walking meditation. Right, you 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 can't sit, you can't close your eyes while you're doing walking meditation, because you have to be more aware of more things, not only what's going on internally, but also what's going on around you, so that you don't hurt yourself. Right, so you can think of <coughs> concentration, samadhi. Samadhi means sama means to come together. That's the root. So samadhi is uh, translated in a million different ways. Um, but samadhi is the one-pointed concentration. So when you have an object, like breathing, one-pointedness of concentration, that is samadhi. Now, when you are practicing satipatthana, you can't do that, right? There's, you're looking at what is happening in, you know, you're examining what about your body, you're examining your feeling, your sensation, you're examining your mind, right? You're, so you're, you're examining many more things than just trying to totally keep yourself focused. Now, of course, as I, <clears throat> I think I said, you know, concentration um, doesn't always mean that you develop insight directly from it because as i said the the buddha learned these techniques before he became awakened all right so you can learn these techniques and you can get into very blissful states um but you need to have the insight to let go of the craving so you can use the, the so concentration you can think of as i've i one time i heard it years and years ago i heard it described this way and i, I kind of like it it makes a little bit more sense you think about it as like um, a flashlight or like a radar. Now, concentration is like the single beam, like the stream I was telling you about with the thing. So the concentration is the laser focus on one thing. Mindfulness is like the wide arc of the beam. So you're concentrating on, it's, it's not a deep concentration, but you still are developing concentration. And that's why in the suttas, the Buddha talks about there are, there are people who come to awakening through jhanas, and there are people who don't come to awakening through jhanas. These we call a dry insight practitioner. But he says that even no matter which way you start out, at the end, you know, when you come to awakening or you're close enough, you, even the person who has the dry insight, they also have concentration. They've developed concentration. So I, I wouldn't worry too much about the differences. If you're, so if you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, you're actually doing both depending on the situation. You know, so if you're following your breath, right, 
And if you watch, um, if you ever listen, read the sutta, Anapanasati Sutta, that's mindfulness of breathing sutta, you're following your breath and then you're observing the different characteristics. Sometimes you breathe in long, breathe out short, these kind of things. And so the, you're actually using the development of concentration to understand the three characteristics as well. That's why the Buddha says that the breath goes all the way to awakening. So... Hopefully that didn't confuse you more. <laughs> I know four of the five hindrances. You miss doubt, craving, aver uh, craving, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. Vichikitja. All right. And I'll talk more about doubt tomorrow. To reach Nibbana, are the jhanas necessary? No, they're not necessary. Um, but as I said yesterday, the Buddha calls it the easy, pleasant route. <laughs> so if you can do the jhanas, I highly suggest practicing the jhanas. It'll make, it, it'll make the, your journey a lot easier. Um, but no, they're not necessary. Interestingly enough, so I've been meditating 13 years I've been a Buddhist now 10 for my probably 11 or 12 years of Buddhist meditation. The majority of that was actually not following my breath because in the beginning I was very like, I felt like a failure because I had trouble following my breath and all kinds of issues. So essentially what I realized I did, and I didn't realize this until years and years later, but my whole practice was Satipatthana. When I would sit down, I would just observe what's going on with my mind and my body. Whatever came up the most prominent, I would just observe it and I'd watch it. And, and that's what I did for years and years and years. And interestingly enough, that actually brought me to my breath. That actually brought me close to jhana. And then like a year ago, I read what I wrote, what I said to you guys in the sutras. I'm like, the Buddha says it right here. <laughs> Practice Satipatthana to get to subdue the hindrances. So, um, yeah, so uh, it's not necessary, but if you can do it, then do it. If not, you know, I'll, I you know, I remember what my point was, what I was going to say was sometimes I go back and forth and think to myself, well, maybe I'm not an actual jhana practitioner. Maybe I'm a dry Vipassana practitioner. And I look back at my life as like, I'm I'm hard headed. I learn everything late. I think like well, maybe I have to go the hard way. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, sometimes I just wonder. Well, maybe jhana isn't for me, but I practice because that's where Satipatthana led me was to the deep states of concentration. So um, don't feel like you have to, or don't feel bad if you if you can't get jhana, but don't necessarily give up on it either. You know, there's a debate, you know, like some, some teachers say, oh, it's easy to get jhana. Anybody can get jhana. Like I heard one teacher, he's like, yeah, the guy, person came to my retreat and they had jhana by the third day. Yeah. And then other people say this is something that happens after many, many years of practice and many years of seclusion and these kind of things. So, uh, I think probably it depends on the person. It depends on the proclivities. It depends on the karma. It depends on a lot of different things.
Um, but don't give up. Give it a try. Could you please explain the meaning of the first and third precept? Panati pata. Does this mean physically, bodily harm, or just killing? So pana means beings, and tipata means slay. So it literally means I abstain from slaying beings. Um, so that's the first one. The second is kamesu. Does this mean sexual or sensual misconduct? Technically, it means both. Kamesu michachara. Kama is sensual or sexual desire. You can say it either way, really. Um, and michachara means misconduct. So it can be viewed both ways. Now, if you, the whole sensual misconduct is, is I think, a more modern way of looking at it. Um, if you go to the suttas and you read the Buddha's definition of kamesu michachara, he's talking about sexual misconduct. And so what he includes in sexual misconduct is anything that's non-consensual or having sexual activity with basically people who are um, restricted in some way. So well, one of it is like people who are under the care of their family. So that would obviously be like minors. Maybe people who have, um, you know, uh, things like Down syndrome that they can't really consent on their own. Like they're, you know, that they're cared for and they're protected by their family. So anybody that's protected by their family, you know, um, anybody who is protected by their Dhamma. So that would be monks and nuns and, you know, priests, any kind of religious figure. Um, anybody who's wreathed. So that would be somebody who's engaged. Um, you know, the spouse of another person. So these, these are the, these uh, having engaging in sexual activity with these groups of people is what the Buddha considers to be uh, sexual misconduct. And one more. During the Tuesday Talker Q&A, can you briefly address which hindrances are indicated by compulsive planning and, more importantly, the suggested mental actions for alleviating that compulsion? Well, compulsive planning, where does that come from? Think about it. Examine. When you, when you have that desire to compulsively plan, watch your mind. It's coming from somewhere. You know, you, something, you can watch what is happening in your mind, and then all of a sudden, the desire to plan arises, right? So what I would say, you know, I mean, there could be multiple reasons, but one of the, what I would think of as terms of being a compulsive planner, which I have a little bit in me, um, I, I, I'm very, I can be a, what would you call it, an, an order Nazi. I like things to be a certain way. Like if I look at things very orderly and nice, it actually brings me like a big, a nice feeling. It's like, ah, oh, it's like feng shui or something. This is like everything looks nice, like the bookshelf. And then two days later, it's destroyed and it's all over in chaos. And I get this feeling of like this aversive feeling, like uh, it feels bad, right? So you can like watch that inside, like, you know, this planning, I need to plan, I need to plan. Why? My suggestion is probably because 
you're immersed in uncertainty and you don't like uncertainty. <laughs> you don't like, you, there's a fear of if I don't plan, this might happen or that might happen. If I don't plan, everything will go wrong, right? So that's, um, you watch that. So planning is okay. We need to plan. We need to plan to do things. I, I, um, you know, when I was in my career, child protective services, I needed Google Calendar to live. Because I was, just, I mean, I was doing so much every day. I, I needed to know where I was going from moment to moment. Um, and I thought I would give that up as a monk, but now I still use Google Calendar. <laughs> Not as much to the extent of when I was in lay life, but I still need it to, you know, for things like that. And so I still plan. You know, I get invited to go places and I go places and I have to plan and make, you know, the dates and all that stuff. So planning is okay. The problem happens is when you get attached to the planning. One of the, um, one of the wisest things I've, I've ever heard in terms of planning is actually from the military. And there's some general, I don't know, it wasn't like Sun Tzu or anything, but the, 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 the statement was, no plan survives first contact. Meaning that as soon as you, as soon as your plan goes into action, chaos and everything comes and, and you, what you planned doesn't fit often what is happening, right? And so what, what a lot of people will do is they'll try to double down on the plan. They'll try to somehow, they, they want to, to, um, they want to, mold what's happening around them into the plan instead of molding the plan into what's happening around them, changing the plan, adopting the plan to what is happening then and there. So, you know, that's, um, that's the important thing, but what hindrance would that be? I, so I would say that it might be multiple hindrances. It might be aversion. Right, because you because you have that aversion, you want you want to have things to be planned so it minimizes uncertainty. Um, you know, even doubt might come in. Um, it could, I think there's probably multiple hindrances. So mental actions for alleviating that compulsion. If you are mindful enough to see it arise, just like what I was saying before, ask yourself the questions, you know, what is this doing for me? Is it helping me? Is it hurting me? How is it affecting my life? How is it affecting my mind? You know, you really investigate that. And when you watch that, when you investigate it and you see it, and you see that this is, you know, harming you, at first you might not be able to fully let it go, but you keep watching, you keep observing it, you keep trying to, trying various techniques, very, whatever comes up, whatever you can think of, okay, how do I counteract this? The more, the more insight you gain into it, the more choices, the more opportunities you have to understand how to use it more skillfully. And also pay attention to what happens after you're done planning and see how that changes. You know, what happens when you compulsively plan? Does it, does reality match the plan that you made up? 
that's another interesting bit of insight to keep in mind. All right, friends. Well, that's the end of the Q&A. So we can uh, take a short break and come back to meditate. Thank you.